0: I'm Casada Bowman. Today, my guest is Chef Zach Wongman. He joins us from Brooklyn, where currently he's chef and owner of the Brooklyn tortilla brand and cafe Sobre Masa and his restaurant, Sobre Masa Tortilleria. Forbes magazine named Wongman as one of their 2022 30 under 30 people to watch in the food world. He grew up in Oaxaca, Mexico, and it's that upbringing that shapes his cuisine. Today, we'll be discussing masa, heirloom corn, the small family farms in Mexico growing this corn. In some cases, farmers have been growing these varieties for over 150 generations. And we'll also talk about the sacred reputation that this ingredient holds. So I'll start by asking, as we always do, Chef Wongman, have you eaten yet? Now, this could be a meal from today. Or a cup of coffee that you're drinking right now. Or it could be the last meal that you have a really great memory about. One that truly resonated with you. It could be from 10 years ago or any time.
1: Usually I'm um, just stick to coffee until lunch. But you know, last night we went to Comodo. We had a really lovely time, um, which is Felipe Donnelly's restaurant at the Freehand Hotel. We had a really great duck dish um, with a farofa.
0: The duck dish was it uh, like a whole duck, or was it tacos? Or um,
1: it was the duck breast. Um, it was the duck breast thinly sliced, um, and then I'm not sure if it was all yuca or potato puree in it as well. I'm not. I'm not really sure, but it was. I think mostly yuca um, had like a lovely sauce as well, and just execution was great.
0: We are going to the area that you were raised in. That's what we're going to have this whole episode about. Um, Your main focus, though, is masa. So let's start off with the basics. If you could educate me and our listeners in the most simplistic way, what is masa?
1: Masa is one of the oldest foods in the world. And when we refer to it, masa is basically a corn dough. It's corn that has been nixtamalized and then ground to a paste. And, you know, this paste you can... Um, tree into a variety of shades, sizes, colors, cook it in a, you know, numerous ways. But most importantly, it's just the cooked mixed in corn that is ground.
0: With you, you've really developed techniques. You've really spent a lot of time with this. So I'd love for you to go a little deeper, talk about the techniques that you've been developing for the last couple of years on your journey.
1: The journey already started with me living in New York City and having this nostalgia for good tortillas and good masa in New York City and wanting to learn more of it and learning how to make it myself at home because you simply couldn't get it. And that really just took me down this uh, very big path of what is is a perfect tortilla and and how do you make that? Also, it followed with a lot of sentiments of regret and and shame because um, I realized how little I knew about tortillas and corn, which is, you know, the primary food of my culture, of my heritage. So that really dove into, like, just researching more and more. And um, what we've come to find out is there is no such thing as a perfect tortilla, because it's eaten in so many different ways in so many different parts of Mexico. There's so many different, you know, preferences that really what a perfect tortilla is really depends on who your grandmother is and how she makes it. The masa we do here at the restaurant is basically what we think uh, New York would think of as a perfect tortilla. So even me being from Oaxaca, our tortillas aren't really made in the style of Oaxaca. You know, Oaxaca, they're very thin and we like them a little bit thicker. Um, We find them, they reheat at home uh, nicer and they have a creamier texture, which I think um, people here really, really enjoy a lot more. And really understanding then how... How we want the final product to be these tortillas that we want a slightly thicker, that we want it a little bit less aggressive than the calcium hydroxide, which is, you know, what you use to nixtamalize it, which adds, um, in big part, a lot of minerality to the flavor of the tortilla. We're able to look at the technique that we use a lot more closely to be able to, to get there. A lot of research has gone in, you know, I'm, I'm originally in pastry training, so it's all new for me. One of the big things we try to do at the restaurant is really try to showcase the diversity of heirloom corn. We're trying to cook with a lot of different types of varietals of corn, and that's very challenging because they all cook a little bit differently. They all taste a little bit differently. Each seed is is essentially a, a new lesson, right? For us to be able to have this consistent product means we really have to, you know, do, do our homework. I think masa and nixtamalization in general is, is one of those things that's seemingly simple, but deceptively complex. You know, in, in essence, it's only three steps, you know, cook the corn, rinse the corn, grind the corn to get masa. But, you know, it's just from how, how much calcium hydroxide you use to how long do you let it soak? Really, the slightest change in the process can give you just the biggest change or outcome.
0: You have gained this deep understanding when it comes to making tortillas. You respect this process. But I know as a chef, your sense and respect of every process that you've ever created. Think back to culinary school, think back to all the kitchens you've worked in throughout your life. You always respect the technique, right? So with this journey, what makes it different for you?
1: I think the biggest part is really understanding your ingredients, right? Before even going into technique or manipulating them at all, you really need a deep understanding of of your ingredients. Um, you know, so that's how... And that's that's also part of what makes you fall in love with with tortillas, um just because corn has such a beautiful story, and um you know it's it's such an old ingredient that you know cuban corn needs human intervention to grow. It doesn't just grow on its own. so it's a it's a plant we've had a relationship with for you know over nine thousand years. So really just understanding the history, the culture, you know. Yeah. Um, the environmental threats it faces today, the people that produce it, you know, that helps you a lot in just understanding the ingredient and being able to manipulate better, you know, the same goes for the, you know, calcium hydroxide. That was, I think where a lot of my like chef training came in handy. Um, Cause we were really, you know, you're able to kind of like understand the ingredient, you know, which, which corns are high in starch, which ones are high in protein, you know, and how, how do they cook differently? You know, the first thing we do when we get a heirloom, Um, a new heirloom feed-in is, you know, we cut it in half, we try to bite into it raw, um, we try to really gauge what other, you know, riles it's similar to, um, because really there isn't anything written on how to do this. So a lot of our recipes are, you know, we have to develop from scratch.
0: So to make your tortillas, you're importing more than a dozen varieties of heirloom corn from small Mexican farms And you mentioned, in some cases, farmers have been growing these varieties for over 150 generations. That number right there is so profound, just to let that seep in 150 generations. So I'd love for you to, if you can, transport our listeners to these farms in Oaxaca so I'm thinking kind of an audio journey. What does a property look like? Are the surroundings near water, dirt roads, trees? Describe the rows of corn for us. Essentially, try to take us there. Consider it an audio trip down memory lane.
1: And We work with Tumwa, um, which is a company that we like a lot. It's a company that sources very responsibly and has great relationships with all these farmers. Um, but more importantly, they're in Mexico. So we like that the money is staying in Mexico and the distributors are Mexican. Um, and it helps us really think a step beyond that, you know, third world mentality where you need Americans to distribute, you know, the goods of the country. Um, but yeah, we we have in particularly one bridal of corn from, from Oaxaca called Bolita, which is probably the bridal we use the most. And one of the things to keep in mind about the Oaxacan landscape is that there's a lot of different microclimates, right? And out of the different, out of the around 50 different heirloom, Bridels that come from Mexico. Around 30 of them are from Oaxaca alone, and it's this you know variety of microclimates that allow that to happen. Uh, You know, you have to think of you're in the car in Oaxaca, and every half an hour the climate changes, which means also the food changes. And on top of that, there's so many different ethnicities there. Oaxaca has 16 different ethnic languages. Um, So not only is it a state that's very rich in 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 diversity and culture. Um, but also in, in climate and microclimates, right? Which you, know, which, you know, gives it a, you know, different bounties depending on what part of Oaxaca you're from. And what's cool about the corn passing on for such a long time I and mean, it being such an old ingredient um, is that the corn has been able to adapt not just to the place and to that climate, but to the palate of the people that grow it and live there. You know, um, I think for pozole would be probably the best example of this because let's say a pozole from Gala, they like they like their pozole to be a little bit thicker, so the corn for pozole there has a lot more starch to thicken the soup. And for instance, in Guerrero, um, it doesn't thicken the soup, right? It's it's not starchy at all, but it's still those big kernels, that so you can get a nice bite out of. Um, so that's a good example of people using two different heirloom varieties um, for their for their ap- for culinary application, you know, not just the climate, right? Um, the climate has a big intervention on how, how the seeds grow, right? Um, if you go down to the coast of Oaxaca or a little bit further from the coast is the Isthmus region, which is um, bordering Chiapas, So it's kind of, you know, tropical climate. You know, there's a lot of iguanas. There's a lot of monkeys, um, you know, there's a lot of rivers, and, um, this is region, people from the Eastmo, they're very, they're very proud of, of their culture that they have there and their cuisine. And the corn they use there is, um, a variety called zapalote. And this area is very windy and it's mountainous. So it's wind hitting up against these corn stalks constantly. And these stalks have developed elasticity, the point where they can fall completely to the ground and then bounce right up, you know. That's something that's very particular to that place. Um, if you go, for instance, uh, a little bit further north, close to Puebla, where it starts to become more desert-like, um, you know there is a variety of corn there called Gajete, which um, you have to dig a little deeper to plant it, but it almost always grows, and it's you know it's, it has drought resisting qualities. And also, a little bit above the stock, there's some special like air roots coming out of the stock that produce a mucilage that attract nitrogen fixing bacteria that actually started a controversy a couple of years ago because, um, the university, uh, university of the United States patented that mucilage. And so it really stirred up the question of, can I use the university to just come to this one town in Oaxaca, find something and then patented. Right. Um, so that really, um, that really stirred the pot. Um, but it's really cool. You know, we have from, so yeah, from like, um, Wind-resistant stocks, uh, nitrogen-fixing stocks. You know, um, so like, let's say, maybe going to a different state, to so the Yucatan, you have all these, all the, all the corn there. It's a little bit smaller, but it grows really fast. You can even have two, three harvests in one year because it goes from seed to maturity, um, you know, that much faster. Um, in fact, if you look at the GMO, you know, that famous seed Monsanto uses, all those genes that make that the super seed are all genes that got selected specifically from heirloom varietals, right? Um, So if you want that seed to be more drought-resistant, you know, you'll grab one of the more drought-resistant varietals or, you know, pest-resistant, maybe, you know, some of the more warmer tropical climates. um, Corns are more, um, you know, insect-resistant because of the climate. Um, So they don't really tell you that, but what's cool is that, you know, All those GMO companies, they need these heirloom varietals. And more importantly, they need them to adapt because the problem with getting GMO seeds is those are seeds you're buying and replanting every year. However, when you're planting heirloom corn and you have these, this is where the true value is because when these farmers are planting the seeds that they grow year after year and saving a little bit to grow the seeds that they pick are their favorite seeds, right? Are the strongest seeds, which means that the seeds evolve with the climate and they evolve with the time. And that's how those seeds are able to survive. That's why, that's why they're, you know, the guardians, the guardians of these seeds, the guardians of these corn.
0: Wow. First of all, thank you for that description, because you described microclimates beautifully. You know, you really took us on a journey there. But also your knowledge. I mean, for you understanding all these different varieties, and I know you probably think you only know, you know, a tenth of it, but for me, this is fascinating. I don't know anything about it. And it's really interesting in how you tied in with the GMOs. That's, wow. Corn, an amazing crop. Wow. I know that you mentioned that you do, you know, you're purchasing from a distributor. You know, I want to touch real fast on the importance of that. You mentioned it, that you are purchasing from a distributor that is working from Mexico, dealing with these farms directly, um, just kind of expand on the importance of that.
1: Well, you know, when we first started, we thought, of course, we're going to import our own corn ourselves, right? Of course, we're going to nourish these relationships with farmers ourselves. But to be honest with you, it's so challenging alone just to have a restaurant, (coughs) You know, I'm thinking about how my, you know, schedule next week when, you know, half the staff has COVID. I'm not necessarily thinking of how, you know, how to source this corn. Um, but what's cool about it is that it's such a beautiful ingredient that it has a very strong community behind it. And it's a very strong community that's trying to defend it and trying to promote it. You know, it's heritage, it's mm-hmm. culture and, and, and trying to build, build a better future for, for it. And I think Domo is one of those strong players in that community that we work with. You know, the owner's name is Francisco Musi, and I think he does a very good job at nourishing those relationships with the farms, doing pilot programs with, you know, their soil. And and the one simple fact also that I did mention earlier was that I like that they're based out of Mexico. I like that the distributor is based out of Mexico because that means that all the money gets to stay in Mexico.
0: I think that's really important to mention. And, and I know that since you're dealing with a distributor, this question may not even be... Uh, for you, but I don't know if maybe when you've gone back and forth to Oaxaca, maybe this could pertain. So I'm just trying to get a feeling of the people growing this corn. You know, I don't know if you have a close relationship with one farmer in particular, if you could tell us about them, their family, or maybe you just have a memorable story from when you were there, because I know you have spent a lot of time going back and forth a story that brings you back to a certain farm uh, that you could share with us. I'm just trying to put a face to these farmers growing this amazing crop.
1: Um, of course. I think, you know, I I haven't met any of the farmers whose corn we buy personally yet. That's still um, hopefully a, a resolution for this year. Um, but I do know a lot of corn farmers and, you know, a lot of them are, are family friends growing being born and raised here, my, 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 my wife's family is, is one of them. You know, they grow they grow different bridles of corn as well, especially her grandfather. But my biggest relationship was, was when I was trying to make tortillas, you know. Um, and who better learn how to make tortillas than the people that grow grow the corn themselves. Um, and they're all very, you know, they're all very humble families. And they're all very hard hardworking families where, you know, really just every day, every day is a blessing. Thank God for the day and just put your head down and and work, you know. If the crop needs weeding, you have to weed the crop. It doesn't matter if it's Sunday or if it's Christmas or, you know, whatever. If it needs the harvesting now, you know, you have to harvest now. So I think there are people that are – that have this relationship with the soil. They have a relationship with their land. And it's cool, especially when you get into the milpa, um, because milpa is, you know, the pre-Columbian way of doing agriculture where you plant corn, beans, and squash all in the same area. And this is something that Native Americans do as well. And the idea behind it is that you have the corn, and then you have, you know, the the stock of the corn that the beans can climb. And then the beans are also nitrogen-fixing. And then the squash will spread, you know, and provide shade so that, you know, other weeds don't grow. So it's an idea of these three plants helping each other in, developing an ecosystem and it goes actually much further than those three plants, you know, you can also throw agave into there, you can throw nopales into there um, all these like you know, herbs um, which you would refer to as quelites um, like uh, I think lamb's quarter would be a quelite corn is like your main crop but then you're also getting, you know, as a farmer all these different crops that not only is the soil in this full circle, you know, where it's being self sustainable but it's also sustain yourself and in your family because you're also getting different nutrients from the corn from the beans and from the squash right and from the from the quelites so it's um it's a symbiotic relationship that you have with with a field
0: if you could touch on the current state of the mexican corn industry from your standpoint are gmo seeds affecting these small farmers are they dealing with any environmental effects that you've heard of or does the future look bright for them?
1: I think a bit of both. Um, There's definitely a massive threat um, to these heirloom seeds and, and the people that grow it. Um, I don't know the statistics specifically. If you go to actually Fundación Tortilla is a great foundation in Mexico that does a good job at um, promoting the, the seeds and, and sharing stories about the farmers and 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 have done the research so we can actually look at the statistics. Um, Fundación Tortilla but the amount of corn that Mexico imports, corn and chilies is like incredible. You know, Mexico imports massive amounts of corn, which is like from the United States, which is something that, you know, shouldn't um, shouldn't need to happen. We should be self-sustainable with um, with corn. And the majority of that corn that's getting imported, well, I think the, the biggest majority is probably um, GMO seeds to feed like cattle and, you know, livestock. Popcorn is probably some of the oldest of the heirloom bridles. All of the popcorn consumed in Mexico is imported from the United States as, you know, probably a GMO seed. Um, So actually one of the things Fundación Tortilla is doing is they're trying to rescue some of these popping bridles that aren't really planted anymore and trying to see if they can, you know, get more of it planted. And then they're doing partnerships with movie theaters in in Mexico to try to, you know, try to promote these seeds more. That's a good example of just, you know, a threat, but then also a strong community that's trying to rescue it, you know. But, you know, GMO is also obviously a threat because of cross-pollination. One of the things that makes corn so special is, you know, it cross-pollinates with itself, which is how how the, the genetics of it are are able to evolve. But what's sad about that is that if you plant the GMO seed next to an heirloom varietal, it's going to cross-pollinate, and the GMO it's going to contaminate the genes of the heirloom varietal. So that's really sad, and it's not like you're really testing it um, to this day, it's actually legal to grow GMO in Mexico. But since it's imported for cattle, there is farmers that have planted it. And, well, it's definitely out there, the GMO. But, you know, there's also a lot of, a lot of universities that are, you know, teaching farmers simple things like, hey, when you choose your seeds, choose seeds from the center part of your land, not the, not the edge. Because the edge is what will probably get cross-pollinated with the neighboring farm, which you don't necessarily know what their seed is, right? Um, so there's a lot of universities that are trying to do a lot of edu- education, try to fight that problem. You know, I think quality of life is definitely a big threat as well. You know, the fact that instead of planting these seeds, you know, you probably want to go to the U.S. and, you know, try to chase the chase the American dream like a lot of us have done. Um, you know, that's definitely also a big threat. You know, a nutrition. Mexico is the country that consumes the most amount of soda in the world, you know, and also has one of the highest IBs. So you go to a lot of farms and a lot of times, you know, you have these kids that are like 10, 12 years old with type 2 diabetes. It's really sad. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of threats, uh, but there's also a really strong community um, that bringing optimism to the table and that are fighting, you know, very hard. I mean, just about the GMOs, you know. There's, there's a community of artists and farmers that get together every year, and every year they fight off Monsanto. And to this day, it's illegal to import Roundup or GMO seeds to the country. So I think there's definitely a strong fight and a strong community of people that are trying to promote this ingredient, save this ingredient, and increase its, its consumption. Because that's also another problem. Consumption of corn has significantly dropped. It's been the, the main part of our diet since you know Mesoamerica. So, yeah, I think we all just need a little bit more corn in our diet, a little bit more masa.
0: Well, you mentioned it before that corn needs human intervention to grow. It's a symbiotic relationship. From my research, it's also considered sacred. The spirituality integration with this ingredient really interests me. So I was wondering if you could expand on the history behind heirloom corn in Mexico and the sacred reputation that it holds.
1: Well, corn comes from and teosinte is a wild grass. The oldest corn that we have found is around 8,000 years old, and the oldest domesticated corn is around 5,000 years old. So you have evidence of, you know, these people in Mesoamerica planting the seed year after year, developing it from, you know, this little tiny grass to what it is today, which, you know, the most planted crop in the world. I think that there's a lot and there's so much to think corn for, you know, you think back in the day and you think back in those people, um, corn being the main part of their diet and so much just depending on the harvest, you know, your entire life. It's like your paycheck, you know, your entire life depends on that harvest that there's also a lot of, a lot to pray for and a lot to, you know, think for, which is why I think a lot of, you know, you go back, you see a lot of those rituals, um, you know, like the rain God and, there's also the corn god, and, and, you know, you'll find a tomb, and there's always, like, some sort of offering to the god of Mother Earth. I think there's definitely that that spirituality, and I guess in some way it evolved, um, but it's still present from, you know, thinking gods to, you know, back then, you know, multiple different gods to now, you know, just going. And you'll see, you know, when you'll see someone make a mole or put their next to they'll like, you know, bless the corn, you know, that's always an important step for them. You know, when you're making tamales, you'll wrap a chili in a little bit of a husk and you'll drop it in to like scare out the evil eye so that they don't ruin your batch of tamales. So I think in a certain way, a lot of that tradition has has evolved, but still present.
0: And is there a connection to with when I was looking up everything it, like women in corn, you know, back in the day more? I don't know. Was, did women farmers hold um, a deeper connection or a certain connection with corn? the feminine energy?
1: I think women have a very important role. I think they're solely responsible for the domestication of corn because if you think about it back then, they were the cooks and they were also the ones that were in charge of selecting the seed that was going to get planted for the next year. So if you think about it, they're the ones that domesticated corn. If they were the ones that are selecting the seeds, right?
0: Well, we're going to step away from corn for a second. Um, So let's go back to you graduate high school, you're in Oaxaca, you are leaving, you know that you want to be a chef, and you go to culinary school, and then you start your journey on the path in this industry. And I want to know if there have ever been any signs or synchronicities in your life that led to new opportunities for you in this industry and if there have been, if you could describe that moment.
1: So many moments in time to to be grateful for. Honestly, I think, I think one of the things I'm the most grateful for is just my parents. My parents used to work at folk art. They used to sell and distribute folk art. And a lot of the things that they did was they would, you know, go and, you know, a lot of the people that made folk art also were, were farmers and were also all amazing cooks. And you know, they've been buying their folk art from these farmers for probably 30, 40 years already. (laughs) Ironically enough, my wife's grandfather was one of them, right? So I think those relationships that my parents had from that industry are also, I would count them as an extended family, a relationship that I wouldn't be here without them because they really taught me the importance of of seasoning, you know, and seasoning in their particular way and the importance of making food personal because it's kind of like in Italy down there, you know, some people might use Oja Santa and other people might use Piteone and Amole and over what's the right way, you might, you might wage a war. Um, But from an outsider's perspective, it's important to see why they like it with Piteone and why they like it with Oja Santa. When you see and you get to embrace the reason behind that, and then you start to look for reasons of why you like things. I think that's when cooking becomes personal. And I think that's when cooking becomes especially delicious.
0: Beautiful. I love that. So, Now I'm going to talk about a flow state. I have a feeling I know that you have been in one before. I have a feeling I in the kitchen, I feel like I know when you are in the flow state just from what you've been describing. But let's go and see. So a flow state also known as being in the zone, is the mental state when a person is performing an activity and is fully immersed in a feeling of energized focus, clarity, and enjoyment in the entire process. It doesn't feel like work. It's effortless attention that you're giving the activity. It's a euphoric feeling. It's something that during this altered state of consciousness that your mind functions at its peak and a sense of happiness flows through your body. I've been in this state. Uh, here's the example that I use for my guests. I can get into it if I'm at my restaurant when it's closed. I'm the only one there. I might be working on new drinks for my menu. Music is playing. There are no interruptions, just me and ingredients and the sounds and beats of music and the recipes flow. And it doesn't feel like work for me. As a chef, I would love to know if you've ever reached this state while in the kitchen. If you have, please describe your surroundings leading up to it. Was there music playing or perhaps you're surrounded in silence and in deep thought? And also, what did it feel like being in that state for you?
1: I think it's definitely a sense of adrenaline, I think, (laughs) for me. Um, And it's probably most definitely when in service, because everything you've done all those hours of prep that you've done, it really boils down to that moment where you're plating the food, when you're executing the food. You know, if if you mess up that one last step, all the hours of prep that went into the work, you know, um, are rendered almost useless. And there are so many just unpredictable factors about a service, that it's about just learning that dance and learning to be aware to, you know, to to adapt to the uncertainty of of the situation that I think really... I, I can relate to the most with what, with what you described and yeah. And it's, you know, it's, 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 as you mentioned it's you know, there's a lot of adrenaline, there's a lot of focus there sometimes is music or sometimes isn't, but that's not necessarily what you're paying attention to. We you know you're paying attention at the task in hand and just have an awareness also of, of just like what's happening around you. And I think where the magic happens is in a kitchen there's a lot of teamwork. Um so what's amazing is when you're all synced at the same time and then it re- and then it really just feels like a dance. You know, it feels like a beautiful service.
0: Yeah. We love a beautiful service. <laughs> no mistakes. Thank you for sharing your story with us. I believe that the journey is always greater than the destination. It's on the path that we learn, we evolve, we encounter lessons that shape us into our best selves. I always like ending the podcast by asking if there's any takeaway that you'd like to leave with listeners that can positively influence their lives. It could be something that we just discussed, a lesson you've learned on your journey, or general life advice that you live by.
1: Um, Honestly, I think just eat more tortillas, you know, Um, whether it's in New York, but if you, you know, pay close attention on social media or just Google search almost every there is a massive revolution going out right now in the country and states from like Minneapolis to New Hampshire, you know, remote small towns. You know, there's heirloom corn becoming readily available in the United States. And there's a lot of passionate people that are trying to put a good tortilla out there with a very noble ingredient. Um, so, yeah, that's my that's probably my biggest recommendation is, you know, look, look at your community. See who's making next And yeah, go bring more tortillas into your life.
0: I was going to say, you mentioned the Nixamal. So is it, what should people be looking for? Let's say someone listening in a small town, remote, like Maine, for example, when they're dining out at a Mexican restaurant and they're like, okay, tortillas, what should they be looking for to make sure that it is heirloom corn, that it is masa?
1: Well, I think um, the biggest for me is is the smell. Um, you know, there's a certain earthiness to it that relates that from heirloom corn that I really don't get with anything else. Um, the pliability, you know, 100% mix them on tortilla, it's not going to fall apart easily. Um, it has that strength. So, you know, withhold its ingredients, um, it's not brittle. Um, so, and then three, if it's colored, um, when you like squeeze a little bit of lime and you see it turn color, that's good sense that it's still natural because a lot of people or a lot of those commercial tortillas will still add food coloring to it and with the food coloring it won't change color with the acid it doesn't do that chemical effect um so yeah there's that too but that's just for the colored ones i think the biggest one for next is just the aroma and and the
0: strength awesome and where can people follow you chef
1: um you can follow us at Sobre masa, um, it's um, sobre underscore masa on Instagram, or you could just write us an email at Sobremasa.
0: Thanks for listening, and if you haven't already, follow Have You Eaten Yet wherever you get your podcasts.